in front of it. Okay. Be that way. Steve Copeland gave me this today, and um, I, I think it kind of fits in with where where we're at, and not only in our church, but in the book of Proverbs. You know, we call our, our name of our church as Old Paz Baptist Church, um, and most people don't know why. Uh, we, we, that's based on a verse in the Bible in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, uh, when Israel is in all kinds of apostasy and a real mess, and, and uh, Jeremiah writes that they're to get back to the old path, to the old ways. And that's where Christianity is today. Uh, they are a long way from what uh, they should be. And when we started our church, uh, that verse was really on my mind, and uh, I, uh, I chose that uh, name uh, based on that verse simply because that, uh, that's really what our church stands for. I know it stands for the Bible and all that stuff, but it stands for more than that. It stands for getting back to the old paths. And he gave me this, and I'm sure he got it off the Internet, but I really like it, so I thought I'd share it with you today before we got into the sermon. It says, the old paths. I like the old paths when moms were at home and dads were at work. Brothers went into the army and sisters got married before having children. Crime did not pay, but hard work did, and people knew the difference. Mom could cook, dads would work, children would behave. Husbands were loving, wives were supportive, and children were polite. Women wore the jewelry, and the men wore the pants. <laughs> Women looked like ladies, men looked like gentlemen, and children looked decent. People loved the truth, and they hated a lie. They came to church to get in, not to get out. Hymns sounded godly, sermons sounded helpful, rejoicing sounded normal, and crying sounded sincere. Cursing was wicked, drugs were for illness. The flag was honored, America was beautiful, and God was welcome. We read the Bible in public, prayed in schools, and we preached to our families from house to house. To be called an American was worth dying for, to be called an American was also worth living for. To be called a traitor was a shame. I still like the old paths the best. And I think, you know, that's probably one of the, one of the best things I've ever heard that really is where we need to get back to, not only as a country, obviously, but certainly as, as Christians. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, let's head back down that old path today. <clears throat> let's turn back to Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Now, up to this point in our study in Proverbs, uh, we've come up through chapter 1 and up through the first six verses. And really, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6 is really an introduction to this book. Uh, it gives you the things that you need to see and understand to really get the book down. We have seen so far, just by way of uh, remembrance, we have seen that the theme of the book is a wise man versus a foolish man. We have also seen, we defined from the Bible what a wise man is. We've also defined from the Bible what a fool is. We also took last week, chapter 1 and verse through 1 through 6, and we really defined wisdom itself. Uh, the idea of being 10 times better when it comes to the issues of life and the world system. I took you back and showed you how that Daniel... <coughs> Uh, when they were taken into Babylon, how that uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to give them all of the things, all of the filth, all of the food, all of the meat that was represented by Babylon. But Daniel 
uh, and the boys didn't want to do that. And they made a deal with the king. <clears throat> they said, you let us eat what we eat by being Hebrews. You let your people eat what you want them to have. And at the end of a period of time, you set us side by side and let's see who's better. Well, I told you last week at the end uh, at the end of that, that period of time, the Bible says that Daniel and the boys were ten times better than all that uh, uh, Babylon had to offer. And I showed you right then the, that uh, I was going to take you through verses 1 through 6 and show you the ten qualities that make up the concept of wisdom. And I told you that when you get these in your life, you become ten times better than the world system. You're smarter than the problem. You're wiser than your enemies. And, uh, you know, and as we move through uh, the book of Proverbs, uh, you're going to see we're going to fall back on this all the time. All of the intro material that we talked about, we're going to be bringing up and making associations and showing you how it dials back in. Uh, We will make mention time and time again of what we've learned from our introduction. It's very important. Now, you'll also remember that the book of Proverbs, and I gave you this several weeks back, that the book of Proverbs uh, breaks down into three sections. I told you chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and then chapter 8 through 30, and then chapter 31 stands by itself. I I told you that the first section is addressed in a personal sense uh, to us as sons, and that's crucial to understand that. Historically, I told you that it's Solomon's son, which is Rehoboam, and uh, Solomon wanted him to be wise like he was, but unfortunately, didn't work out that way, and Rehoboam became one of the biggest fools in the Bible. So I told you historically it's talking about Solomon's son. Doctrinally, prophetically, it's talking about Israel as God's son. But I also told you that in a practical way, in an inspirational application, when he writes these seven uh, chapters to uh, his son, it's God speaking to you and me as his child, you and me as his son. And in in these first seven chapters, God takes, uh, and I've always appreciated him because it's almost like God is taking a personal interest in me, and he's taking a personal interest in his children. That personal instruction, much like you as parents ought to be giving your children, and I'm sure many of you are, the personal instruction of, of sitting around the table, the personal instructions of, of sitting on the bed with them before they go to bed at night, uh, the personal instruction of, of sitting uh, them on your knee and explaining to them, taking the biblical principles, the instruction of life, and explaining to them the things that they should be aware of and the things that they should stay away from. I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if you've counted them up yet. In the first seven chapters, 15 times, he uses the phrase, my son, in a personal way to give some kind of instruction. And I think the word instruction in the book of Proverbs is the key word because it's what we all need. It's what Solomon was giving his son. It's what God is giving me as his son, and it's what you as a parent ought to be giving your children as your sons and daughters. Now, as I break this book down and I teach it to you, I'm going to follow the natural order of how the Bible lays out. And that is we're going to take it as best we can. Sometimes we may not be always to do it because of how we're going to do it. But uh, in the Bible, you have what is called paragraph marks. Most people have no clue what the paragraph marks are in the Bible. By the way, the only Bible in the world that has the paragraph marks in them is a King James 6 to 11 authorized version. There's a reason why the paragraph marks are in your Bible. 
you'll find that they're invaluable in, in breaking down uh, the Old Testament. You don't find any paragraph marks in your Bible after Acts chapter 20. There's a reason for that. We won't get into it this morning. <clears throat> but all through the Old Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and up through the book of Acts to Acts chapter 20, you'll find paragraph marks. Now, paragraph marks will divide your Bible up. Paragraph marks will show you when one subject uh, he talks about, and then uh, within those two paragraph marks, one in the beginning, one in the end, it'll show you in the next section another thought, another concept. And it keeps you from running your Bible altogether and getting confused when he changes subjects on you. They're invaluable in the Bible. I must also tell you that for those of you who live on a deeper plane in the Bible, those paragraphs, marks uh, uh, that were put in there by God, they obviously many times, and I showed you this, I showed you many times Thursday night, but they'll actually show you different dispensations in the Bible. They're, They're just absolutely crucial. And they're essential in, for us getting the context and separating all the material. So as we come through the book of Proverbs, we don't want to run all of our concepts together. So as best we can, we're going to stay within the paragraph marks and take that thought, develop it, and, uh, and try to work within that. Sometimes, you know, maybe a few times we can't do that because of the extent of the material, but we're going to do that to the best of our ability and follow that program. Now, let's begin here. <coughs> And I want to read for you chapter 1, and we're going to start it at verse 7. And yes, there's a paragraph mark in verse 7. And uh, we're going to read up to verse 9. If we would have verse 10 in your Bible, you'll see there's a paragraph mark in verse 10. So we're taking this section. Now, here's what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother." For they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head <coughs> and chains about thy neck. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you so much. <coughs> and I thank you for the people in this church and the ones that have come today. Lord, they're good people. Uh, they wouldn't be here if they, if they weren't. <coughs> I know that some of them have issues they're still trying to solve and work through in their life. We all do. But, Lord, on a, on a, on a, on a basic concept, they, they, most of them want to do what's right, if not all of them. They may not do it, they may not make it, but I believe that they're here today because they want to. And Father, we need your help today. You know, I, I, I don't have anything to give them, nothing that I could ever get out of the Bible on my own would be of value to anybody. But Lord, only as your Holy Spirit of God takes the people sitting here that you've given to me, take my heart and me that you've given to them, and then take the Holy Spirit of God if you've given to both of us and then knit it all together and bring out of this great book the things that you want us to see today. Our Lord, we thank you now and we'll praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it, amen. Now, verse 7, and here again I want you to see this. The first warning in the book after the intro is again about bad company. The book of Proverbs keeps driving the issue home. You are who you hang out with. It keeps putting that issue, and I'm glad you kids are here today, uh, being Kids Sunday, because I want you to to understand uh, uh, some things today, uh, and Book of Proverbs, where we're at, is going to be a great value to do. I'm glad your parents are here, because with you, sitting by your side, because if you listen today, when you leave here, there should be no misunderstanding of how this thing is supposed to work for you, Uh, but the first warning in the book is about bad company. I always looked at it as the New Testament version of, that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verse 33, where Paul tells us that, that we're not to be deceived, that evil communication corrupt good manners. 
Now, when we think of the word manners, we think of sitting at the table, not belching. Uh, we're sitting at the table and, and, and not eating like a pig. Sitting at the table, uh, you know, all these things I'm guilty of. And we, we think about <laughs> sitting down and, and using some etiquette when, when you eat. And we talk that manners. Uh, when, I was in, when I was in grade school, where some of you are at, uh, we had a, we had a, a, a woman on TV uh, that uh, was, tried to help the kids. And uh, it was, uh, and also you found it in the early Leave it the Beaver uh, scenes where he went to school. What was his teacher's name? Miss Manners. Manners, you see. Now, that was suggestive of the fact that a school teacher was going to teach the kid manners. So we think of the word manners uh, like being good and being respectful and all that. And I'm not saying that's not what it is, but that's not what it's talking about here. What it's talking about here that evil communication corrupts good manners. It means that evil communication and the people you hang out with corrupt the manner of person that you are. It changes you from who God wants you to be to who the world wants you to be. And that's the first thing he says in verse 7. Now, verse 7 says plainly that fools despise wisdom and instruction because there's no fear of God in their life, which really, the fear of God, the beginning of knowledge, starts the learning process of our relationship with God. Now, I'm sure a lot of what I'm saying today, many of you are already well aware of. But as a Christian, there should be some things a Christian should be afraid to do. Now, I, I live in a, we live in a world today where it's seemingly like, sin has lost everything that the Bible ever says it was, and that God's people today live their lives like there is no such thing as sin anymore. But I'm telling you, when you get on the old path, you're going to find that as a Christian, there should be things as a Christian should be afraid to do based on what God says about it and then how God deals with it. I'll give you a great example. In Proverbs chapter 6, and we'll get to Proverbs chapter 6 uh, as we get move on through this, and we'll spend a lot of time here. But in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, it tells you the six things that God hates. And then it also tells you that there's a seventh that makes like the capstone of it, <coughs> tops the thing off. And the seventh thing that God hates is, uh, he calls it an abomination. Now, when you look at that, and you would think of that, when you would say, God is holy, six things that God hates, uh, and the seventh one must be really bad. Uh, boy, I'll tell you, what could that seventh one be? Oh, it must be murder. It must be rape. It must be suicide. It must be child molesters. It must be, it, it, it must be uh, uh, incest. It must be, uh, it, you know what it is? Slandering your brother. The thing that sets the capstone of what God hates is slander. It's gossip. The Bible calls it showing discord among the brethren. And yet, and we'll see it when we get there, if you list all of those six things down and put the seventh on them, those six things, the seventh making an abomination, are what God's people do all the time. They're the seven favorite sins that God's people get into. They have nothing to do with murder, nothing to do with rape, nothing to do with incest, nothing to do with child molestation. They're just basic common sins that God's people get into all the time. Now, why do they do that? I'll tell you why. Because there's no fear of God in people's hearts today about what the Word of God says. We just take the Bible, we use it where it's convenient for us, we'll believe the Bible and apply the Bible where it helps us, but when it's something that is against us, then we rationalize our situation and put it over here. That's the way we do it. 
That's, it happens all the time today. Now look at verse 8. My son. Now I want to tell you this. <clears throat> you can't study Proverbs and not, got in, and not see and get into the family structure. Because it's about a father, it's about a son, and it's about a mother. All through this book. And there's some incredible material for you young couples with kids. Now, our church is a, is a unique in, in many aspects, but one of the greatest aspects of it is you go to most churches today, and, you know, 90% of the people are in over 70 years of age. And uh, you have very few young couples. And those churches are going to just die by you know, regression. It's just going to, you know, they bury him one at a time. Nobody new comes in. It only gets older. It gets more stale. It gets more stagnant and nothing ever happens. Our church is just the opposite. Our church is, is 90% young couples and then, uh, you know, 10% of, of the older people. But even the older people we have are not stagnant people. So it's a good bout. Now, there's a reason for that. We don't have time to get into that this morning, but someday if you ever go out and, and start a church and want to get into ministry, I'll explain to you why that is. But you cannot come through uh, the book of Proverbs and not see the family structure. It talks about a mother. It talks about a father. And it talks about a son. Ignoring that and glossing over that and not seeing the practical application of that, you're going to miss some incredible truths, and it starts in this verse right here. Now, he says, my son, verse 8, hear the instructions of the father and forsake not the law of thy mother. Now, let's look at this for a moment, and, uh, and let's put it into a, uh, this is a great principle, let's put it into a practical everyday life situation. Now, this thing here in verse 8, should be the model of every family that's going to be a solid family. Now, I told you earlier, and I'm going to say it again, and I'm going to make references to it all the way through our sermon today, uh, and probably as we come through the book of Proverbs. We live in a day of Christianity where the families are fractured. We live in a day and age where Christianity, where the families are gone. We talked about this a couple of uh, night, uh, weeks ago on Thursday night Bible study, the fracture of the family. Now, you would expect the world families to fall apart. You would expect that because we know the world is a mess. But God's people are supposed to be, Daniel chapter 1, 10 times smarter than the world. And yet, you see it every day. I deal with it all the time. Many of you work with me in dealing with people. You see it all the time. There's never been a time on a global scale in Christianity where the family has been more broken and fractured and more messed up by the very ones who hold the Word of God who should be smarter than the world. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you're going to begin to see the model here today if you want to have a solid family. And we have a lot of young couples here today uh, that I'm glad are hearing, getting a chance to hear this. Because you all have young kids, you all have babies, and some of you on a continual basis are going to keep on having babies. It just goes with the water fountain out there. And I saw a couple of guys drinking from it the other day, so we may be a first there too. I don't know. But anyway, you've got to get this. You've got to get a handle on this. You've got to understand these principles here uh, that's being taught here uh, as an instruction from a father and a mother to a son. Now, let's look at this for a minute, the practical situation. Now, he says this. He says, 
The father, he says, the instructions of a father. Let's put it in a practical application. The father, we know, is to be the spiritual leader of the home. We know that. He leads by example. He takes the things that God teaches him, his spiritual growth, and he he puts that into his family. We know that. The father is the head of the house. We understand that. He sets the rules of his house. He has to have some rules uh, that he instructs his family. He sets down the instruction that his house will run by. That's very important. A father, the instructions of a father here will be a picture of us as fathers taking our family and laying down the rules, giving the family instruction, saying to them, this is how it's going to be, saying to them, this is the way our house is going to run and operate. Joshua said it better than anything I could ever say when he said back there in Joshua, he says, I know not what others may do, but for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. See, that was instruction. He was shutting down. I don't care what anybody else does, but in this house, we are going to follow what the Word of God says. That's vital to see and understand that. Then he says this, now the mother. He says, forsake not the law of thy mother. Now, you know as well as I do, and this is true, in many cases, and especially in the early years, the mother has more, spends more time or more influence with the uh, kids than, than dad does. It's not always true, but it's true in a general sense if your life is just a, a normal life the way it goes. And the mother, now her job, remember, the instructions of the father, he sets down the rules, but then it says, forsake not the law of thy mother. The mother holds the line of the father's instructions. The mother takes the instructions of the father and enforces the law, enforces the rules that the father puts down in the family. Now, and let me say this. You young couples that are raising your kids and your kids are coming to the place where they're coming up and are you going to have a family at some point? I'm going to tell you right now. The fallacy of having rules in your family but you not enforcing those rules in your family, you don't have any rules in your family. It's an illusion. No, no. Rules without enforcement. Instruction without enforcement. Setting down the law without enforcing it is the biggest mistake you'll ever make. And it takes both parents to do it. He says, the instructions of thy father... And he says, the, the, the uh, law of thy mother. It takes the father laying down the rules, and then while he's away or at work or mom's with the kid, she enforces the instructions of the father, and side by side, they do it. Now, in a practical, everyday way, that shows you uh, what we talked about last week when we talked about uh, having a balance in your life. And many families are out of balance. Many families are out of balance. And you've got to have a balance in everything in your life. That's what the right balance is for your family. It's the father recognizing that he's the leader. He sets down the instruction. He lays down the rules. Mom doesn't go behind him and undo the rules. Mom realizes that, that it's the law, and she enforces the instructions. And that's a balanced family when you get to that point in your life. I'm going to say it again. The dad, the father, sets the course for the family by example. He lays down the instructions based on the word of God by which his family will operate. The mother, 
as a helpmeet, will take those instructions, those rules, and make them the law of the house, enforcing them with the children. It's a lot like this example. The state laws are put into effect by state legislators. They get together in Jeff City or wherever, and they say, okay, these are going to be the laws of Missouri. But the legislature does not enforce those laws. The legislature is a lot like the father. He lays down the rules. The enforcement of it is, is the police officers. The police officers take the instructions from the legislators and they reinforce that by holding you accountable when you go 75 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone. You see, it's that kind of concept. Maybe that's why your mother understood it without ever understanding it when she used to catch you and say, you're busted. See, maybe it goes along with that. I don't know. But it's a thing where uh, it, this sets the biblical model for a good balance. And what it does, it shuts down the kids, which they're famous for, playing one end against the other. And that's what they do all the time. And when that balance is in your life, when you follow what Proverbs is saying, and a book filled with moms, dad, a, a father, a mother, and, and son. When that thing is, is laid out that way and dad leads uh, the family by the instructions of the father and mom enforces the law that, 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 that they're going by, it leaves the children with no option. It doesn't give them any wiggle room. It doesn't give them any latitude. It doesn't allow them to circumvent whatever issue you're dealing with because mom and dad are there in the same page. Dad is the spiritual head laying down the instructions. Mom is enforcing the instructions, taking that law and holding them accountable with it. Now, this is where you get to use your imagination for a little bit, which is always helpful. We've all seen incredible bad examples of out-of-balance families. I mean, I see them all the time. Uh, in the ministry, it's the, probably the number one thing I deal with. And, and I've got to be honest with you, I, I have my major goal in ministry. My major goal in ministry is to have as many of you young couples lose your kids, uh, 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 not lose your kids as possible. <laughs> I, I, I put a parenthesis there because some of you, I want you to lose those kids. But no, I'm just kidding. That's my main goal. My main goal in everything I do is to not have you in this church lose your kids. There's absolutely no reason for it. Absolutely none. Absolutely none. You see it all the time. I see it all the time. And unfairly, the breakdown of the family today is the number one plague in Christianity. It's the number one problem we face. And more and more, we see Christian families, not the world, Christian families disintegrating. Uh, in 40 years of ministries, uh, you know, many families have, have come through my life uh, where the balance is bad. I mean, I, I, I was thinking as I was putting this together Monday and Tuesday, uh, you know, man, I mean, I mean, a flood of memories came back with people uh, that had issues and had problems that, that basically had them because uh, they were out of balance. And, and, and in most cases, uh, and I, would, I was thinking of it, uh, you talk about an out-of-balance family. In most cases, you're going to find it's where the wife runs the family. She runs the show. I mean, uh, and the father's a wuss. I'm not sure what wuss means, but I, I heard somebody use it on TV, and it sounded like an excellent word to put into my sermon. <laughs> I've seen it where the father was weak and let his wife get completely out of control, and then she runs the family. 
And I understand how it is. I've seen many, many. I talked to a guy one time, and and he's a pastor. I talked to a guy one time whose kids were just absolutely in the world. And I asked him one time, why don't you do something? And he said, well, you know, Bob, he says, every time I try to step in, my wife steps in and undoes what I do. I understand it. When you get a wife like that that's completely out of control, and you're such a spineless, gutless guy, you can't deal with it, and you won't lay down the instructions because you're afraid she's going to look at you wrong, I'll give you this story. I had a guy one time said, my wife was giving me problems, 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 problems. And I told her that if she didn't get off my back, she wasn't going to see me for three days. <laughs> and she didn't get off my back. And she said, first day, she didn't see me. Second day, she didn't see me. The third day, she could just see me a little bit out of that one eye. <laughs> I'm not suggesting that at all. (laughs) Uh, And some of you dear people who are so sanctimonious now, you know, you'll be telling that story tomorrow all day at work and taking credit for it. But I asked this guy, I said, you're a pastor. Your kids live like hell. They're no different between them and the world. Your church is a mess. What? And, he, and he said, he says, you know what, Bob? He says, I know. He says, but every time I try to step in and do something, he says, my wife just gives me problems. And I know how it works. After years of that and years of that, you wear out. When you can't get control of it and somebody else has control of it, it's just a constant battle. And after a while, you know what you do? Human nature does it. After a while, you just give up on it. After a while, you let it be the status quo. After a while, you just kind of divorce yourself from all of that. You go fishing or you go hunting or you go do this or you go do that. And you just check out from it. I understand. But then what happens, the pattern always is the same. The, the, the out-of-balance relationship between the mom and the dad, instructions of the father-in-law or the mother, will go right into the rest of the family. I've seen it in churches that I preached at. I preached at a church one time out in western Kansas. I was going to ask you, Chris, I can't remember the place it was. It wasn't Iola's down south. Where was the Wayfar place out there? It wasn't Coldwater either. I forget where it was. This has been years ago. And they asked me to come out and preach, and I said I'd be glad to. So I I went out there, you know, way out in western Kansas someplace. I got there. And I had to, you know, back in those little towns, they don't have motels, so you have to stay with a preacher, which is cool. I like it. Fine. And uh, so I'm there, and, you know, we had dinner that night, and the pastor, you know, he got a phone call, and he was on the phone, and his wife pulled me aside, and for the next 30 minutes, she told me who was bad in the church. She told me who didn't treat her family right. She told me, you need to say this in your sermon, because some people need it. She gave me the rundown on everybody in that church. I mean, I, I, I mean, she pulled me aside and she told me, I, I mean, uh, she told me this person is bad and this person is no good. And you need to preach on this and you need to, you need to say this. I mean, she, boy, she, you talk about getting in, your instructions. Now, I found out after I left, because I didn't do any of those things, of course. Then I found out after I left, I had somebody uh, wrote me, you know, we didn't have email back then. Somebody called me or wrote me and said that she undid everything I did, you know, and then slandered me and everything else. But it was clear to me 15 minutes into this conversation that this was a wicked woman. I mean, that this whole church was out of balance because the pastors, uh, the whole thing was out of screwed up. And, you know, I always tell you everything rises and falls on leadership. 
I mean, the, the kids were a mess. I mean, they always are. And this was one of the biggest messes I ever ever in my life. You talk about Kansas, the Wicked Witch of the West, this was her. She, somebody, about four years after I'd been there, and this has probably been 20-some years ago, somebody called me or wrote me and said that she'd passed away. Now, I don't know what, I didn't go to the funeral, don't know anything about that, but if one of the songs at the funeral was in Ding Dong, the witch is dead, they missed a great opportunity, I'm telling you. I mean, this woman was something else. The, the pastor wasn't the pastor. Oh, he was allowed to get up on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night, but brother, the Wicked Witch of the West was in charge and she called the shots. I'm telling you, man, I've been in those situations. I was so glad to get out of there. He asked me to come back. In fact, the next year, he says, he, he called me up the next year and he says, and I loved it. He must have knew because he said, and he didn't say, we'd love to have you back. He didn't say, we, we really want you to come back. He said, I guess you wouldn't consider coming back next year, would you? I said, you know what? I'm really busy. I got a lot of things going on, and I just, uh, but I'll tell you what. Now, see, this is why the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, if you can't rule your own family, then you have, how are you going to take care of the house of God? The answer is you won't. She will. And boy, I'll tell you what. It was a mess. Now, Father, Dads, this verse shows you what you were supposed to be, our leadership role in our family. You set down the rules, the instructions, and the wife, the law of the mother, enforces and reinforces what you set down. And, and the young couples need to get it. I mean, you do. Now, at the same time, I want you to see this. Now, also in this verse, there's a great doctrinal application. He says the instructions of the Father, that'll be a reference doctrinally to the New Testament in your Bible. Matthew to Revelation. He says the instructions given to us by the Father, that is the Holy Spirit of God in the Word of God who begot us in Christ by incorruptible seed and sealing us in Ephesians chapter 4 and sealing the Word of God in us and then we get into the New Testament and get the instructions of a father. The law of our mother will be the Old Testament, law of Moses, Genesis to Malachi. You see, in a practical sense, we all come from the nation of Israel anyhow. John chapter 4 verse 22 says salvation is of the Jews. You go to Romans chapter 11, you only find out that you and I got New Testament Christianity based on what God gave the Jews. And when they, when they abdicated what they had, God gave it to us, but it came from them. Your salvation is you got in Christ Jesus. He was a Jew. Now, here's the application. We'll see the same thing here that I showed you in a practical way about a father and a mother. Now, where the father lays down the instructions in a family and the mother supports and in, enforces that, uh, what the father says. Uh, for, the, for the New Testament, the church age, uh, it's the same concept, only in a doctrinal sense. So the Old Testament, the law of the mother, will support the principles found in the New Testament that the father wrote to his children, us, you and me. The law will always support the Old Testament, the law of the mother will support what the father's instructions are to you and me. That's why you have to have an understanding of both. Now watch this. The New Testament is, and I've told you this many, many times, the New Testament is revealed through the Old Testament because the Old Testament is a support system by its stories and types and principles for the New Testament writings. Now you look at the Old Testament. I'm telling you right now, the New Testament is contained in the Old Testament. You've got 39 books in the Old Testament. 39 books in the Old Testament. 
We call it the Old Testament. Old has three letters. Testament has nine letters, 39. Now, if the New Testament is contained in that, then you ought to be able to see that somehow, and you can. 39 books in the Old Testament. The New Testament contained in the Old Testament? Okay. You take the three and the nine, and you multiply three times nine, the Old Testament, you know what you get? 27. There's your New Testament books of the Bible. The New Testament is contained in the Old Testament. When instructions of the Father was given to you and me in the New Testament, it's the Old Testament that supports the New Testament given to us as instructions by the Father. And that's how it works all the way down the line. Now, now along with that, it shows you again how important the Old Testament and the New Testament is. You see, I may, this is why in the Old Testament it's all about stories. I, I, I've taught you many, many times how the Old Testament is broken down by stories. And that story started in Genesis, and they run all the way up through the book of Acts, really. But you ever notice that after the book of Acts, there's no stories in the Bible? Oh, you got Paul's missionary journeys and all that stuff. But there's no stories like there is in the Old Testament. There's no stories like there is in Matthew. There's no parables, no nothing given, no great long lengthy stories about this guy or that guy. It's just all principles. The reason for that is, is that when the instructions of the Father, the New Testament, were given to you and me, it's the law of our mother, the pictures, the stories, that we see the illustration of the New Testament principles. The two go together just like a husband and wife should go together. The New Testament is the instructions of my Father to me in the church age. The instructions of my Father or the New Testament principles written to me. When I want to understand those, when I want to use those, or I want to give them to you or enforce those, you know what I do? I go to the Old Testament, my mother, the law, and I find a story in the Old Testament that supports the New Testament principle. That's how it works. It's incredible. If you're going to have the right balance in your life with the Word of God, then you need to have a good working understanding of both the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament. I mean, you do. Some of you, uh, you know, uh, you, you have these little Bible reading schedules, and, I, and that's great. But they'll follow the same pattern. I've seen many of you, you know, you'll read 10 chapters uh, a week or 10 chapters a day, and five will be in the Old Testament, and then five will be in the New Testament. You'll read the first five chapters of Genesis, and then you'll read the first five chapters of Matthew. See, it's following the same idea, trying to get you introduced to both books. Some people are really good in the, in the New Testament, and they're very shallow in the Old Testament. Some people are really good in the Old Testament, and they're shallow in the New Testament. In both cases, you're out of balance. You've got to be able to use both. You have to look at it at the New Testament is the instructions to you from your father, but the law of your mother, the Old Testament, contains the support, the stories that you get that illustrate those New Testament principles. You have to have a balance in your life of both, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The one will reveal and support the other. You use the study of the Old Testament to lay out the principles of the New Testament and show them how it works when you deal with people. The Old Testament stories support the New Testament principles. Now look at verse 9. Here's another aspect to it. Verse 9. For they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy neck. Now the they of verse 9 is the instructions of the Father and the law of thy mother in verse 8. I want you to see that. 
Now, that ornament of grace to your head and chain about your neck deal with something that you wear that brings honor to you in a practical, personal sense. And given the context of a father, a mother, and a son, the ornament of grace is to your head. And the father should be the head of his family. So then what we're talking about here, young couples, is the fact that the ornaments of grace and the crowns to your head that brings honor and glory to you and Christ is your family. And what your family does. Note the ornament of grace is to your head. The father is to be the head of his family. Chains about your neck. We'll talk about a little bit. That's your will. This thing's a reference to your family, to your kids, and how they turn out in your family at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, I think that's part of the problem with all of us is we're too short-sighted to the judgment seat of Christ in everything in our life, but in, in, truly in our families. That verse and what we're getting ready to look at here says that every time, uh, you know, you look at your kids, when you understand the principles involved, every time you look at your family, fathers, every time you see your family, you ought to see the judgment seat of Christ. But we don't look at it that way. We ought to look at that in everything we do, every relationship we allow ourselves in, every circumstance we put ourselves in. We ought to view it in how it's going to play out when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't. I'm guilty of it too. We don't. But we should. And when you see this thing, it goes right back to our context, the instruction of the father and the law of the mother. Now, let me show you something. Proverbs says, Proverbs 17, 6. Now, you want to get this down. We'll deal with this when we get to it, but it fits right here. We need to look at it today in what we're talking about here of this crown to your head and this thing around your neck. Proverbs 17, 6 says, Children's children are the crown of old men, and the glory of children are their father. That's one of the most profound verses in the Bible dealing with the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I know what it's talking about in a practical sense. I understand all that. But, brother, you better not miss the application here to the judgment seat of Christ. Because in a doctrinal sense, that verse in 17.6 is saying simply this, that your children and your grandchildren are going to make up your crowns at the judgment seat of Christ, whether you get them or not, by what you do. The ongoing cycle of the family for God's glory. And I've told you before, and I'll say it again, my main burden for you is this church with all the young couples is that you don't show up at the judgment seat of Christ without your kids. That you don't lose them in the process because the world certainly wants to take them. That you don't, some of you that's gotten, I've, I, I, I encourage you all the time about how good your kids are, but I want to be honest with you, and I'm sure many of you do. Some of you ought to get down on your knees and thank God for the kids that God has given you. But he's saying there that your children and your grandchildren are going to be the crown. That's what he says. He says, children, children, that's your children and your grandchildren are the crown of old men. That crown is the judgment seat of Christ. And my main burden for you young couples that have little kids or babies or want to start your family, that you'll see the absolute necessity of this. The family unit. Talked about it a couple of Thursday night ago. It's the main aspect of your millennial reward. Stop and think about this for a minute. In ministry, 
And, and most of you are in, are in ministry. You work somewhere here doing something. Not all of you, but m- many of you. Let's put it that way. In ministry, we deal with a lot of people who come in and we try to help them, don't we? Sure we do. And we also know that in, the, in that endeavor of love, some make it and some don't. We understand that. But we don't have total control over them to tell them or make them do what's right. Not that we should. What we have to do is we preach to them. We try to get them to come to church, kind of get them to come to Thursday night Bible study, let the Holy Spirit of God work on them. We teach them. Some of them get into discipleship and you work with them a disciple or you work with them in marital counseling or many things that we've done. And we've seen a host of them get their life turned around, get their marriages put back together and all those good things. We pray for them. We hold them accountable. We try to help them the best we can. But you know as well as I do, we cannot make or mold them into what God wants them to be. It's impossible. We have limited contact and control over them. We don't have that kind of control. We shouldn't have that kind of control, but we certainly don't. But think about it in light of what I'm giving you. The only ones you have 100% complete control over, the only ones you have 100% complete control over in your life are our kids. Totally incomplete. Psalms 127.4, as arrows are in the hands of a mighty man, so children of the youth. A father by his instructions or the lack of his instructions. A mother by her enforcing the law or not enforcing the law. A father and a mother by having rules that they hold accountable or having no rules. Either way, they take those children and just as an archer can take an arrow and hit a bullseye at 100 feet, you launch your kids in a path in life. They're the only thing in our world, guys, With all the people that we work with, with all the circumstances that we deal with, they are the only ones we have as parents 100% complete control over. And that's why he says children's children should be the glory of old men. That's what he's saying. Your family, listen to me for a moment. Your family are for you to be by your side in ministry. Bible says they're a heritage unto the Lord. You hear it all the time. Well, the children are heritage, are your heritage. No, they're not. They're God's heritage. They're not your heritage. But what they are for you is to ensure that your millennial rewards and crowns never end. They work side by side with you. They learn the ministry from you. They get involved with you. They grow with you. And then when you can't do it anymore, they continue on with what you can no longer do. If you rule your family and set down the instructions, if the mother enforces those with the law of the mother. Father says, this is the way it's going to be in our house. Mom says, that's 100% right, and then you keep them accountable. And you train them up in that mindset. Now, failing to do that and allowing your children to have somebody else or something else to have more influence in their life will do two things. First of all, it'll take away your crowns. 
children of the crown of old men. Your kids will keep your ministry alive after you can't do it anymore in your place. The second thing is it says in the glory of the children are the fathers. Now here is the leader, the father's responsibility, not the mother's. Listen to me now, fathers. Not only are the children's children the glory of old men, but it says in the glory of the children are their fathers. Listen to me. The glory your kids will receive or not receive with the judgment seat of Christ is based on the foundation that you have built in their life and the Father and how you've instructed them and how He will set the rules for the family and kept them accountable. The most tremendous responsibility on this planet, greater than the presidency, greater than any five-star general, greater than Alexander the Great and all the great men down through history, the greatest responsibility on this planet is the responsibility of a father. Your kids at the judgment seat of Christ will get what you build into their life now. The glory of your kids, what they receive at the judgment seat of Christ is based on what you do. When a kid defies your authority at 20, it's simply because you failed him at 4 or 5. Wait, when I had to come down on my kids growing up, and brother, I did. When I had to drop the hammer on them, and brother, I did. When I had to deal with them and issues, and brother, I did. When I had to deal with that every time, not one single time, the thing that, that, that kept me from being a wuss, the king that kept me from slacking back when my emotions said, don't do that. The thing that kept me and my finger on the trigger was the fact of that verse that at the judgment seat of Christ, they will thank me for what I did, even if they don't understand it now. Some of you don't get that. You do not get it. You do not get it. You do not get it. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, and oh, how true these verses are. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is it a heaviness to his mother. Boy, there's no, I had him sit in my office and I've had him just weep with a broken heart. I've had him just weep and cry with a broken heart. Boy, that is so true. Bible says in Proverbs 15, 20, a wife, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man despises his mother. Now there's a good verse. Look at that one. See if you catch that one. A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man, he's grown up now. See? He's grown up now. Boy, I'll tell you, for the last, all the years in my ministry, I've seen him. I've seen kids get to say some of the most ungodly, filthy things to their moms and their dads. I've seen them cuss them out. I've seen moms and dads do it to their kids too. But I tell you what, I've seen, I've seen kids get to that point where they're in their 20s and mom and dad try to do something with them or don't give them what they want. You know, as long as you give them everything, you're their friend, but the moment you try to hold something back, they cuss you out like a sailor. They call you everything in the book. I've had situations where the woman would call me on the phone and she would just be heartbroken. She just had a fight with her son who wouldn't do what's right and the son just called her everything in the book, words I hadn't heard for 30 years. And, 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 and she's all upset and want me to do something and the wuss husband is right in the family and he won't do a thing. There's some really bad things going on in families today 
in the world. Christian families. And I know a lot of you, I understand, a lot of you got into this after your kids. You never really got into the Bible the way you should. And when you really dialed into it, I mean, your kids were already teenagers and they already had their problems. And, and, and so, I mean, to a certain degree, I understand where you're coming from. And I got to say, in, in just about most cases, every parent that found himself on that, you did exactly what the Bible needs to do. Therefore, absolving yourself of that guilt. Because it's an easy thing to hear this sermon if you got kids, you know, that, you know, that you've tried to do everything right and I don't explain it and you go out of here and beat yourself up. I'm not talking about that. I've watched some of you parents take the hard line. I've watched some of you parents drop the hammer. I've watched some of you parents and I just stood back and looked out and smiled at you and I said, if that kid's got any chance, it's because of that parent what they did right there. And maybe they will, maybe they won't, but they'll never point their finger at you and tell them. You're going to see Wednesday night down at Turnaround how it's a hellfire sermon without ever bringing up God in the Bible and no prayer before, before or after. But boy, you're going to talk about dropping the hammer. I dealt with a couple about two months ago. There's no, I don't understand a lot of things. I mean, I'm an old school, and I don't, I don't, there's a lot of things I look at, and I just say to myself, I don't know how in the world, I don't even explain that. How in the world does two composedly saved people produce a homosexual son? I'm open. If you ask that question on Thursday night, I'm going to sit down and let somebody else answer it. How does that happen? How does that happen? I mean, two people are supposed to be saved. How do you raise a gay child? How do you do that? I, I don't know. I, wa I want to know. Not that I want to do that, but I want to know. I, I, I look at that and I scratch my head. I don't understand how that happens. Uh, we look at situations around us, and because we really don't care about what the Bible says, we just look at it, and then we just blow it off and say, oh, well, you know. I'm telling you, there's some, the family is fractured today. And yet, that couple, when they came in and sat down and talked, they, they were just, they were just, they were just like, oh, well, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? <laughs> hey, there was a time in my world back when, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, <laughs> that if your daughter had a baby out of wedlock, you didn't parade it around like, look at this baby God gave us. It was sin. That doesn't mean you don't help them. It doesn't mean you don't do with it what's right. You don't try to make a way and try to make it work. You don't throw them in the furnace. I'm talking about, not talking about that. But you just can't pretend that sin is okay. It's fractured today. It's fractured today. It's fractured today. And it doesn't mean if you ever found yourself in that situation that you can't work out of it. I've seen many situations where they've done what's right and God has blessed them. I mean, come on. But that's the key. Doing what the Bible says. I've seen men want to get into the ministry. And they have no business being in ministry because of the principle in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. Yet they go and do it anyhow. And all they do is take all of the garbage that's in their family and it just infiltrates down through their church. I've seen kids fail in life. 
not want to do anything with God, church, or the Bible. I've seen them get to 20 and 30 years old and, and, and they don't want to do what's right. They, they'll use their parents. They'll abuse their parents. They'll take from them. They'll come to them uh, when, when they need something, usually money. But behind the scenes, they mock them. They make fun of them. They cuss them. They talk about them. And the parents' reaction, I understand it, it seems like the natural thing to do, but it's not. You think the natural thing to do is, well, if I love him more, if I love her more, she'll love me more. No, you're wrong. Amen. They disrespect you more. They, it, it's a green light to take more from you. At some point in your life, you got to drop the hammer. I don't understand it. One of my two girls ever disrespected my wife and said something about her. They, we got two stories. We built the house. We put two stories. The second story was for that purpose. Throwing her little rear ends out the window. <laughs> yes, and both you girls do realize I've made those windows larger in the last couple of years. Now, let me clean this up. It goes without saying, no kids are perfect. It goes without saying, no fathers are perfect. No mothers are perfect. No families are perfect. Every child, every kid, as they grow up, will at some point, Try to challenge your authority at some point. They all do. There'll never be a child that any parent will have that will not fail. There will never be a child that in anybody's world that will not make bad choices. There will not be a child in anybody's family that at some point or the other will not cause you some embarrassment. But hey, Dad, you're in charge, not them. Don't abdicate your power to them. Don't put them in charge of your family. Don't allow them to tell you in your home what they're going to do and what they're not. At that point, the moment of crisis, it's the instruction of the father, the rules reinforced by the mother, Supporting those rules that stop it dead in its tracks. Some of you had to break off complete relationships with your children. Hardest thing you'll ever do. Hardest thing you'll ever do. And when I look at somebody like that that does that, I I, I can't tell you. I have, in the world that we live in, that I have more respect for you uh, than, than anything else on this planet, for you have the courage to do that. That has to be, it is, I can guarantee you, it is the hardest thing you'll ever do. But there may come a time in your life that that is the only thing you can do. It may come to the point of your life that that's all you got left. As I said, some of God's people I've dealt with over my years, they've come in late. They got into the Bible late. They got in. Their kids were already problems. Nobody ever instructed them. They went to a goofy church someplace or got no instruction. Nobody took any time with them. And here they are. They're in a mess. I don't care where you've been and the mess you're in. All I care about is what are you going to do to fix that mess today? Are you going to do what the book says? All I care about. 
And when you do, God bless you. I respect you more than anything else on this planet. Now, he says, the ornament of grace to thy head and chains about thy neck. Now, from a practical standpoint or a personal standpoint to you and me as a son in verse 8, not only are you as a father and a mother in a family, are your kids, your crown at the judgment seat of Christ, but you not only are their crowns by which you teach them, but in a practical sense, I want you to see this, the ornament of grace to thy head and chains about thy neck. Those crowns and chains are our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. For us as a child of God, now forget the father and mother thing now, that was a doctrinal side to it. This is the personal practical side. For us as a child of God, taking the New Testament instruction of our father, God, in the New Testament and then taking the Old Testament law of my mother and reinforcing, doing something with it in my life, starting with your family and going down the road from there. Now, again, the two aspects of our, uh, of our body here that it references to is very important. He says the head. The head. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, Paul said that, the, that we should have, as, have us to know that the head of every man is Christ. That's your head. It's real simple. Christ will be, listen, Dad, Christ will be the head of your family only when he is the head of your life. It's not simple. It's not hard. It's not complicated. It doesn't require Greek or Hebrew. It doesn't require anything. It's just simply that way. And to see if that's true, just look at two things. Look at the wife and look at the kids. It's that simple. We want to make it so complicated. And the reason why it gets so complicated because so many people want to mask the real problems. They want to hide behind. I call them politician Christians. Every time a politician gets in a real mess, if he just come before the people and say, you know what, I screwed up. I did this and I did that and I shouldn't have done it, and I know better, and I just had a weak moment, and I'm sorry, and I've come to the American people to fess up and tell you I did wrong, and I want you to forgive me, it'd be over. It'd be done. America is one of the most forgiving nations on the planet. People want to forgive. They want to forgive you. They, they're, they're, they're drawn to something they perceive as real, whether it is or not. But oh no, the politicians got to get up and say, I never had sex with that woman. Okay. <laughs> uh, it, it blows it all away. Nothing works better than just being honest. Hey, it starts, and I've watched you families who've had kids. Uh, you know, you, you've sat down with them and you said simply, you know what? We, had, we haven't done what's right. We haven't done this right. We got into this late. We've not done what we should have done, but we're going to do right here from now. And there's a new sheriff in town, and this is the way it's going to be. Now, they may, they may adhere to that or they may not, but either way, you did what was right. And from that point on, you, you lay down the instructions and you hold the accountability of the law. That's all you can do. The buck has to stop with you. But here again, we see these two aspects, the head. And to see if that's, it's just, you know, we see if it's just true, uh, you know, on all those areas. The head will be the reference to you getting God's mind. When I started this year, I'll tell you, 
when I, every year we have a theme and we've came to, we've came to a place where, you know, we've been now 10 years, this was our 10 year anniversary and I have built this on, on little plateaus uh, up the thing to get you as a church where we needed to be and God has graciously given us everything we need. And we came last year, Joe Christensen and Zach, we're going to put on the first camp for our kids. Uh, we, we, we had come to a level and, and uh, at New Year's Eve we had a great time and I, uh, we talked about it, I preached a couple of sermons on it that we were going to dedicate this year to, to the family. That this was going to be the year of the family. That we were going to take now everything that we did, try to get all you couples to get your family involved with you in ministries. I had two families come to me and tell me that if I would do that, they're probably going to leave the church. Now, the reason why they told me that is because their kids were not in ministry, would never be in ministry, and want nothing to do with them in ministry. And it was an embarrassment for me to get up here and them to sit here every Sunday. And In other words, what they wanted me to do is let all your kids and dad and go to hell so they could feel good about themselves. I have something I want to say, but I'm a Christian. I can't say it. Read my mind. <laughs> Ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. You think I'm going to sacrifice all you young couples because some idiot over here that didn't do right with his family is going to get embarrassed because he's not man enough to stand up and say, I blew it? You think I'm going to sacrifice the rest of you for that? You don't know me very well. And that ain't going to happen. didn't happen. Yes, they left the church. We need your seat. Thank you very much. You see... You have to preach the truth no matter who likes it or who doesn't like it. I'm not going to sacrifice young families because some older family that can't get it together, refuses to get it together, can't get it together. And I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't sleep at night. I wouldn't be able to look myself in the mirror knowing that every time I stood up here, I had to pull back to say something that you needed, that somebody else may get offended because I say it because it would embarrass them. Almost said at that time. <clears throat> you know, when Christ is your head and he leads you, then you'll simply be a leader of others, including your family, by example of your life, not as some title that you have or being a pastor. You know, in the world itself, the head of man is used all the time in every situation to show success or failure. I, I, Chiefs last night, I watched the Chiefs. I really liked that they did good last night. But I was listening to the commentators, and they use it all the time. The guy said, now, that was, that was a heads-up play. See? They use it all the time. Somebody says, well, that young man's got a real got a head on his shoulder. There, see? Somebody said, all right, get up. We're going to head out. Lead the way. I've heard people say to young men that they used to work with them, son, you need to get your head on straight. Head. I've seen some of, some of the wives say to your husband, you give me a headache. Man. <laughs> I've looked at people and thought to myself, you're out of your head. Head. <laughs> Saw a bumper sticker the other day that says, you want to lose 20 pounds ugly fat? Cut off your head. Your head. And how many times have we all been told to get your head out of your ass? Ask me no questions and I'll tell you no lies. <laughs> now someday, 
you're going to get some crowns. And you'll wear those crowns on your head. And those crowns will show the assembled universe that you made Christ the head of your life. See? And you should stand there with your family. Because the Bible says, children, children are the crown of old men and a father of glory to their children. They ought to have their crowns as you have their crowns because you work together as a team. Only ones you have control over. The fact that you made Christ ahead of your life and you did something with it. See how practical that is? I mean, who couldn't get that? Then he says, chains about thy neck. Now in the Bible, the neck will always stand for the will of man. We find it in the Bible called stiff-necked. Stephen in Acts chapter 7, I think it was in verse 51, uh, preaching to the nation of Israel, uh, said to them, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. They, were, they, they would not bend to his preaching. In Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 6, Moses said to the nation of Israel, he said, now you need to understand, boys, understand therefore that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Now to be stiff-necked is to be proud. Okay? To be stiff-necked is to be arrogant. To be stiff-necked is to be uh, unforgiving, unyielding. We call it to be bullheaded. We also call it to be stubborn. All those are words that mean stiff-necked. To be stiff-necked is that you impose your will over what God wants you to do for Him. I mean, you see it all the time. All my life I've seen Christians who, who I thought they had great potential. And yet they took everything that God gave. Do you do realize that everything you have, you have because God gave you? Amen. You do know that. I don't have to tell you that today, do I? Amen. You have the job you have because God gave you that. You have the ability to go to work. And you have the, the hand to do it and the feet to walk and the brain to think because God gave that to you. You do understand that. And yet at the same time, he gave you all that. He also gave it to you for the main purpose that you might do something for him. And yet I've seen God's people all the time, all my life, I've seen them take all those things that God has given them and keep them for themselves. I've seen them take the abilities that they had for guys to be good preachers or good Bible teachers, keep it to themselves. I've seen women take the things that God gave them and the personality they had and the ability they had, and they kept it all to themselves. Instead of taking what they have and giving it to the Lord, they took all those things to make money. Instead of giving those things to the things of the Lord, they took those things to get things for themselves. I mean, I've seen it all my life. Oh, you have too. You know, I've seen many of God's people do with their life just like that. And then I've watched them get into bad situations. I've watched them get cancer. I've watched them get heart problems. I've watched them get into hospitals. I've watched them get into divorces. I've watched them get into drugs, alcohol, uh, failed businesses, failed churches, failed marriage. And they still won't let that break their neck. They're a fool right up to the casket. A long time ago, there was a guy who was dying in St. Luke, in Baptist, Baptist Hospital. And this was 30 years ago. And the family called me. Uh, he had never been to church, and he was lost. The family had come to church on a kind of a regular basis, and they called me and wanted me to come over because he only had hours to live. And I'll never forget, I went over there. It must have been about 10 o'clock at night. Hospital was dark and quiet. And uh, I, I walked down that hall, and, you know, I could hear the echoes of my shoes banging on the walls. And it was a very lonely place. Walked down to that room, and the wife was there, and the boy was there, and the family was there, and they were 
they were all upset and they came to me and they said, Bob, uh, he, he's not going to live through the night. And he's, 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 he's dead. He, he's dying. He's not going to make it. And he says, he's not saved. And we said, we want you to try to win him to Christ. Well, the guy is comatose just about, you know. I mean, why didn't we think about this a little earlier in life, you know? But that's the way it goes. He couldn't speak. He couldn't open his eyes. But he was conscious of what was around him, that he, he would talk to you by squeezing your hand, once for yes and two for no. And, you know, I went in there and I asked everybody to stay out because I didn't want it any more confusing because when you're in a situation like this, I wasn't going to pull any punches. This is not a time that you, you, you play, you know, the card where you just say, well, how are you doing today? I, you know what? Uh, you know, you've got to get down to the line. This guy's got hours to live. And I, some of the things I had to say, I didn't want the family to hear. Just I didn't want them to remember it that way. So I got down there, and I, and I only met the guy one other time, and I took his hand, and I told him who I was, and I asked him if he recognized my voice, you know, once for yes, two for no. Squeezed my hand, yes, he did. And I, and I didn't pull any punches. I said, I remember some saying something like, you know what, I don't even remember his name. Say it was Tom. I said, you know what, Tom, I said, I'm here because you're going to die tonight. The doctors have said you're not going to live through the night. I know you can't speak, and I know you can't open your eyes, but I know you can hear me. And I says, Tom, I said, uh, there's no time to, to, to play around with this. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun, Tom. And, and if you don't trust Christ as your own personal Savior, you're going to die and go to hell tonight. I said, I, I don't know what else to tell you. I said, I'd like to say we could do this next week or we could do it later or come back to church and we could talk. We don't have that, Tom. We got tonight, and the doctors say you're not going to live through tonight. Now, I said, Tom, let me ask you. I said, squeeze your hand if you mean yes. And I said, Tom, do you know that you're a sinner? He squeezed my hand. I said, Tom, do you know that right now if you die without Christ, you're going to die and go to hell? Do you know that? He squeezed my hand once. He knew that. And I said, Tom, I said, I've come up here for one thing. I said, that is to bring your soul into, into Christ. And I said, the Bible says this, 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 this. Well, through the whole line, I said, do you understand that? He squeezed my hand. He understood it. And I said, Tom, I said, you've squeezed my hand. You under understand everything I've said, right? One more time. And he squeezed my hand, yes. I said, all right now, Tom, right now, the best way you know how, with hours to live and death walking down that corridor, will you, the best way you know how, ask Christ to come into your heart and save you right now? And if you will, squeeze my hand. A sucker wouldn't squeeze my hand. He was at the point of death. In fact, he died four hours later. He understood everything I said. He understood he was a sinner. He understood that there was an eternity of hell without God waiting for him, but he had his will. All of his life, it was his will over God's will, right up till he stepped out into eternity and went to the lake of fire. The will is a powerful thing. And I've seen it all the time in God's people. God saves you. God gives you everything that you need and all the things that he provides for you that you can give back to him. And you know what? You too won't squeeze his hand. You won't do what you need to do. So now, when it comes down to your life with God and the book of Proverbs, it's really for, for, for you and me in a practical sense as my son. And it simply comes down to two things. 
it comes down to your head where you're going to be and what you're going to think about and your neck. What will it take to break your will against God? Taking the instructions of your father and forsaking not the law of thy mother. You see, in dealing with people, we always look at the outward symptoms that the person is going through and we have a, we have a way of diagnosing that as that's their problem. Well, the problem is drugs. The problem is alcohol. The problem is this. The problem is that. And as long as we look at our lives or somebody else's life and we look at it that way, I've seen it before where somebody says, well, you know what, Uh, I don't go to church because something happened bad to me a long time ago and I just never went back to church and I'm not going back to church. And and we have a tendency because of what they say and, and we're so shallow in the Bible that we actually think that's really the problem. The problem really was somebody hurt your feelings at some point. The problem really is drugs. The problem really is alcohol. The problem really is this or the problem really is that. No, that's not it at all. That's the symptom of the problem. But you see, when you look through the problem and you get down to the Bible, instructions of the father and law of the mother, you see that in every case, the problem is not the symptom. The problem is the real problem. And the real problem is simply this. Your will versus God's will. That's all it comes down to, folks. Don't try to blame it on somebody else. Don't try to blame it on this circumstance. Don't try to blame it on your upbringing. Don't try to blame it on this. I guarantee you, in everybody's life here today, at some point in your life, maybe it was your parents, maybe it was a coach, maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a youth worker, Somebody saw the road of life that you were on and tried to tell you that was the wrong road. And you simply would not listen. I had a friend of mine years ago, years ago, was the warden down in a prison in Georgia. And years and years and years ago, I was preaching down there in a, in a church and he, he had me over to preach a, a, a service at the prison. And uh, it was a great opportunity, and I, I went and preached, and the uh, place was packed. And uh, we went out to lunch afterwards, and he was a Christian man. He was a great guy. He's he dead now, but he was a great guy. And we went out to lunch, and I said, how many people do you have in prison? He says, well, he says, we have over 2,000 in prison. I'm saying, wow. I said, that's incredible. He says, yep. And he says, and they're all here for the same reason. I let that slip for a second, and, and, and I thought about it, and uh, what he t- his answer to me in that, I've never forgotten all these years. And I let it go for a little bit, and I'm thinking to myself, they're all here for the same thing. There's got to be 5,000 different crimes that a guy can do. I mean, oh, what, this is a prison for one crime or whatever, you know? So I asked him, I says, I, says, I says, let me ask him, I says, what did you mean by that? I said, there's 2,000 people in here. I said, in my mind, there's probably over 1,000 different crimes on the books. How in the world can they all be here for one reason? And I never forgot the answer he gave me. He says, 2,000 plus guys are in here for all the same thing. They all made the wrong choice. And now this is the consequences of it. And I'm telling you, 
Life is choices. And you're either going to be a wise man or you're going to be a foolish man. You're either going to see these principles and you're going to do something with them, or you're going to keep your neck stiff, stiff-necked, and you're going to go your same old way. You're either going to put Christ ahead of your life and break your will and say, God, I'll be whatever you want me to be, or you're going to do your own thing. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now, let me say this to you. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. This day needs to be a deal breaker for you. Maybe you've been on the fence back and forth of where you're at and what you should do. And maybe it was just took the accumulation of today to hear what we've talked about in the Word of God, that you now know that, that your life without Christ is a dead-end street. You're either going to take Christ as your personal Savior and have a life of, of uh, endless hope, or you're going to stay the way you are and have a life that is a hopeless end. But it's your choice. But today, after what I've said, I feel led to ask you if you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. You say, what do you mean by that, Bob? I've been to church lots of times. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about simply this. Right now, if you would die, do you know 100% for sure that you'd go to heaven? If you don't, that's what I'm talking about. You need to make sure. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, I'm not going to take long. We'll be on our way here in just a moment. But if you're here today and you'd say, Bob, I don't know for sure if I'd die right now, if I'd go to heaven. Well, our heads are bowed and we're praying for you. If you're here and you find yourself in that state and you want to do something about it, would you simply, with every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would you just lift your hand up so I could pray for you? God bless you, sweetheart. I see it. Anybody else? Anybody else? I'm not sure that if I die today, God bless you, son. God bless you, son. Anybody else? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Here's my hand. Three or four hands went up. Anybody else? I'm not sure. Here's my hand, Bob. God bless you in the back. I see it, sweetheart. Anybody else? Just going to wait for a few moments. I heard what the man said today, and I believe the Bible's the Word of God, and I come to the conclusion right now, Bob, in my heart and my life, that if I stepped out into eternity like that man at that Baptist research Baptist hospital, I'd never be able to meet God. Anybody else? It's always your choice. Before I pray. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we do love you, and we thank you, Father, for today and for the folks that have come and for the message that you've given us. And truly, the book of Proverbs is just a, it's an amazing book. Lord, it has so many great concepts and principles in it. And help us, Lord, to, to glean from it. Help us to learn from the instruction of our Father and, and Lord, the, the law of our mother. Help us to realize that, that uh, what we do for God comes out on the other end with the crowns on our head and chains about our necks. Lord, I ask you today to touch the hearts of these young couples that have kids, that not another family in this church would lose their kids, that, Father, that you would do uh, in their life, help them to see it, help the fathers to see their awesome responsibility, the mothers to see their awesome responsibility. And in situations where it's already out of control, there's always something you can do. Give people the courage to do the right thing that needs to be done. 
And Father, we'll just thank you now and praise you for all that you do. We love you. And I pray for these hands that were raised, for these men and women that don't know for sure where they'd go if they died today. And I pray, Father, your mercy and your grace upon them and your love extended to them that they do what needs to be done. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name and sake we ask it. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Hey, look, simple. If you raised your hand and you're not sure you're saved, right now here's what I want you to do. I have women and men in the back, and I have uh, people up here that will take the Bible, open the Bible, and show you how you can know for sure that you, have, you, you can be saved. Right now, right now, with every head bowed, we're not looking around. We're praying for you right now. If you raise your hand, or maybe you didn't raise your hand, but now you know you need to do that, just stand up wherever you're at. And I'll have a lady, if you're a lady, come to you. I'll have one of my guys, if you're a guy, come to you if you want to. You want to stand up, and we'll have them take care of it. Stand up, down. Okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? Now's the time. Now's the time. If you raise your hand and God wants to do that in your work in your life, allow him to do it. Break that will. Break that stiff neck right now. Bend it to him. Anybody else? Just stand up wherever you're at. And we'll take the word of God and show you how to open up the Bible and know for sure you can be saved. Anybody? Anybody else? Join this one brave girl. Anybody? It's your time right now. It's your time. God bless you. Pam. If her mother's with her, take her mother with her. Okay, right there. Anybody else? Okay, good deal. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you today for the Lord Jesus. We love you. Thank you, Father, for the Word of God that makes things so clear. Lord, we, we try to make it so complicated. Many times we want to make it complicated because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to deal with it. But in reality, that's the greatest thing the Word of God does. It cuts right through everything and just puts it right on the table. And thank you for doing that today. Take these young couples and and to help us to help them and help them to give them the vision of being everything. They're so great. And we have a great host of, of young couples that, that have a great foundation. And they'll, they'll make great moms and dads. But help us make them better. And Lord, we'll just thank you now and praise you for all that you do. We love you. Thank you for today and thank you for, uh, Lord, our church and what you've given us here. And we'll be careful to give you all the honor and the glory and praise. In Jesus' name, for sake we ask it. Amen. God bless you. You're